All right, we are continuing our comeback series, and we're looking at the whole of the Bible as a comeback story. We're looking at some of the famous stories in the Bible as comeback stories because the reality is we need a comeback. We need a comeback. Our nation needs a comeback. Uh, We are sick and tired of being sick and tired of this pandemic. We are sick and tired of the political infighting that never, ever stops. We are sick and tired of the cultural kind of melee that, that has us at each other's throats. We need a comeback, a comeback that is fueled by love, that is fueled by grace, that is looking at each other even with different opinions and saying, hey, listen, we're on the same team. Let's build our country back. Many families are ready for a comeback. This pandemic and tensions, religious tensions, political tensions, have torn some families apart. You're not seeing each other and connecting like you used to, plus there's maybe disagreements, heightened disagreements, and offenses back and forth. Families need to be restored. Families need a comeback. Maybe you need a comeback. Maybe you are sort of suffering this now almost year-long continual weight of maybe fear or anxiety or isolation and you're just, you're just needing life, you're needing energy. Maybe your emotions are drained and your head is perhaps going sideways, thinking things uh, that kind of frighten you. You need a comeback. I'm excited about the comeback of Rancho Church. I mean, our plans for this grand reopening of Rancho are exciting. I can't wait to get everybody back connecting and on mission together to do what Jesus did. We are ready for a comeback. And as we're ready for a comeback, we're now looking at the Bible and saying, okay, the entire thing's a comeback story. Uh, From the third page of Genesis, we see the world goes south as we choose to hurt each other and we choose to dishonor God and we choose self over others. And then the entire Bible's a comeback story to the last chapters of Revelation where every tribe, every tongue, every nation are together in perfect unity and together with God in perfect unity by his grace through Jesus Christ. The whole Bible's a comeback story. It's really remarkable. Then you look at the individual stories in the Bible. Each one is a comeback story. Adam and Eve is a comeback story for for pride. Cain and Abel is a comeback story from violence. Noah and the flood is a comeback story from corruption. The Tower of Babel is a comeback story from seeking power. Last week, Pastor Megan talked us through the comeback story of Joseph. Here he is, you know, sold into slavery by his own brothers, a victim of oppression and a family torn apart. And then there's a comeback story of that family being put back together. That family becomes the nation of Israel. And the entire Old Testament, Old Testament is about Israel failing and coming back, uh, suffering and coming back. Israel gets attacked by outside forces, and they come back. Israel gets destroyed by inside forces of their own rebellion, and they come back. And the big comeback story of Israel is looking forward to Jesus, who himself is a comeback story, right? From crucifixion to resurrection. The whole thing is a comeback story, and we need that comeback story for us. Now, as the nation of Israel was sort of struggling with their own comeback story in the Old Testament times, they latched on to a very famous Near Eastern story that's become known as the story of Job. Job. The people of Israel latched on to this story, very famous story. The people of Israel latched onto it, and they identified with the suffering of Job so much, they canonized the book of Job in their Old Testament scriptures. That's why it's in our Bible. It's a great story of comeback from suffering. And we're going to have an overview of that today. And I am convinced this is going to have real lasting impact on your life, particularly if you or someone you know is suffering. What is Job? How do we read the book of Job? First of all, we need to understand Job is a poem. It is a work of art. It's a work of literature. 
It is a beautiful work of literature. It is one of the most lauded works of literature throughout human history. It is masterful Near Eastern poetry. It is also a parable. Job is not about Job. Job is not about a person named Job. Very likely a person named Job going through this story never existed. It's a parable. Just like Jesus told parables, it doesn't mean that person ever existed. It's just a parable, right? It's a story. But the, the Spirit of God-inspired truth is within the story that can apply to anyone who needs a comeback. It can apply to a nation. So the nation of Israel is Job. It can apply to a family. If your family is struggling, you are Job. It can apply to you. If you are suffering, you are Job. So consider Job this incredibly masterful work of poetic, this poetic epic tale that really is the story of all of us who go through times of struggle. And within the pages of Job, there's a, a question that is asked and sort of answered that is the same question we all have when we are either observing suffering or going through suffering. Here's the question. Why do people suffer? Why do people suffer? Everyone who has ever lived has asked that question, particularly about good people. Why do good people suffer? Everyone has asked that question. If we read or hear a, a news story about suffering, our heart breaks for that person who is suffering. And it could be something totally outside of their control, right? Our heart breaks in the face of suffering. I mentioned last week, uh, we lost a, a, one of our heroes here in our city, a philanthropist who, who gave so much to so many. And, and most of the things he did to help people, no one will ever know about it. He just did it quietly and humbly. And he lost his life way too young for no reason, for no reason. And we wrestle with that. Why him? Why his family? And, and we can point to others, countless others, who we might know and we might love who are suffering and they're dealing with a disease or a loss of a business or they lose a loved one. You know, parents who may lose a child. I mean, I've got friends who have lost their children. There is no more unimaginable suffering than that. And it makes no sense. It's totally unjust. Why do good people suffer? Maybe there's an accident, just out of the blue, an accident, a, a force of nature or, or just a, a car accident or, or, or something that maims and kills for no apparent reason. It's unjust. Children who are abused and there's no one there to protect them, it's unjust. Or even the day-to-day -day things of economic hardships, you lose a business, you lose a job, and we can't connect the dots. Why does suffering happen particularly to good people? The book of Job addresses this, wrestles through this, and has some things that we can pull from the book that truly will help us. But instead of me kind of going through this very long book and telling you the details of the story, I'm going to show you a four-minute video from The Bible Project. I'm, I'm commanding you, you must see The Bible Project. It's got all 66 books of the Bible summarized in beautiful ways, artistic ways, and theologically masterful ways. I'm going to show you four minutes of the summary of the book of Job. It's awesome. Check it out. The book of Job, it's a profound and very unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. The story is set in a very obscure land that's far away from Israel, Uz. 
The main character, Job, he's not even an Israelite. And the author, who's anonymous, doesn't even set the story in any clear period of ancient history. This all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and on the questions raised by his experience of suffering. The book of Job has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative prologue and then an epilogue. And then the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry, representing conversations between Job and four dialogue partners called the Friends. These conversations are then concluded by a series of poetic speeches given by God to Job. Let's dive in and we'll just see how it works together. The prologue introduces us to Job, and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honors God. He's a super good guy. And then all of a sudden, we're transported into the heavenly realms, and God is holding court with his staff team. It's a very common image in the Old Testament describing how God runs the world. And among the heavenly beings is a figure called the Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching a court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer. Then we'll see how righteous he actually is. And then God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, it's at this point in the story that most of us go, what? Why did God do that? And then we assume that this book is going to answer that question, why God allows good people to suffer. But as you read on, the book doesn't answer that question. Nothing in the book ever answers that question. The prologue is setting up the real questions this book is trying to get at. Questions about God's justice and whether God operates the universe according to the strict principle of justice. And the response to those questions comes as you read through to the end of the book, not at the beginning. The ultimate reason for Job's suffering is simply never revealed. So the prologue concludes with a suffering and bewildered Job who's rebuked by his wife and he's approached by three friends who are going to try and provide wisdom and counsel. Their names are Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They're all non-Israelites like Job. And they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and the human condition. And this moves us into the main part of the book. First, Job speaks. And this is how the section of the book works. First, Job is going to speak, and then they'll follow a response from a friend. Then Job will respond to that friend. Then another friend will respond to Job's response, and so on, back and forth, for three cycles. And this whole debate is focused on three questions. Is God truly just in character? And does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And if so, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? As we're going to see, Job and the friends, they're working from a huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principle of justice. So if you're a wise, good person and you honor God, good things will happen to you. God will reward you. But if you're evil and stupid and do sinful things, Bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. Now, Job's constant argument throughout his speeches is this. First of all, that he's innocent. And so the implication of that is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Now, we know from the prologue, both of these things are true. Remember, God himself said, Job is righteous and blameless. And so Job concludes his argument by accusing God. God either doesn't run the world according to justice, or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. All right, so you see the dilemma there. Here is Job, a righteous man who is suffering, so all of the normal questions are asked. 
Why do good people suffer? Where is God in the suffering? How can we come back from suffering? So there's a couple of things, three things to take away from the story of Job. The first one, and, and I'm telling you, you're going to have to ruminate on this for a while. This is going to be a, kind of a mental trip for you that's going to last well beyond this morning, I promise. Something to take away from Job is that God's sovereignty is at an arm's length. God's sovereignty is at an arm's length. This will help us navigate suffering. Here's what I mean. There is what's called a trilemma. It's a philosophical trilemma. It's a logical trilemma that basically has no solution, which is why we have been torturing ourselves about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering since humankind began to think uh, with human brains. So here is the trilemma. Number one, God is good. Number two, God is sovereign. Number three, evil exists. That's the trilemma. You cannot logically have all three of those at the same time. You could have any two, but you can't have all three. Now, we know God is good. We see that in the Bible. We know evil exists. We see that in the Bible, plus, of course, our own experience. But then God is sovereign. We also know that in the Bible, so there's a problem. I can have one and two. God could be good. God could be sovereign, but that would mean evil could not exist because a good sovereign God would not allow it. You can have one and three. You can have God is good and evil exists, but that means God would not be sovereign. Something got away from him. You can have two and three, that God is sovereign and evil exists, that means he's in control of evil, therefore he cannot be good. You can only have two of the three, but we know all three are true. So this is the problem. This is where we wrestle, right? And, and, and you've got to come up with some conclusion. If you're going to have all three, either God is good, either God is evil, or God isn't sovereign, but you cannot have all three of these. But here's what I want us to, to think through as we summarize the book of Job. In the book of Job and elsewhere in the Bible, we see that God's sovereignty is at an arm's length. Here's what I mean. There are different gradients of sovereignty. There is the iron fist authoritarian sovereignty, which means that God is in control of absolutely every little thing. Uh, some of my Calvinist friends are more authoritarian in terms of God's sovereignty. That God is the mover of everything. God causes this to happen, causes this to happen. God is causing me to move my arms in this very awkward way, right? God is causing and orchestrating it all. He's the puppet master, and we just are all doing what we're programmed to do. If that's the definition of sovereignty, then God himself is the mover of evil. He's the initiator of evil. And that is a real problem in terms of scriptural truth that says God is good. There's another kind of sovereignty. It is delegated sovereignty. So for example, if there's a queen that rules over a kingdom and there is a city that needs a ruler, the queen could say, I delegate the sovereignty of that city to a prince, and I'm going to send the prince to that city to rule over the city. The queen is saying, listen, I'm sovereign, but I've delegated that sovereignty over that city to this other person. And that person may choose out of their delegated free will to bring prosperity to that city or bring suffering to the city. There's different kinds of sovereignty. Biblical sovereignty has God's sovereignty at an arm's length. To put it more accurately, God delegates his sovereignty. To put it this way, God created a free cosmos and God created free people. Free cosmos and free people. So let's look at that trilemma in a little different way. God is good, number one. Evil exists, number two. Those are absolutely true. But nuance is in the middle. God sovereignly delegates free agency. God sovereignly delegates free agency. And this happens in page one of our Bibles. 
Genesis chapter 1. So God created human beings in his own image. He created us in his own image. God is a free agent. God can do anything, yet God chooses good. He made us in his own image, so we can do anything. We are free agents. From the very beginning, God told humankind, you can choose. Choose good, choose evil. Up to you. He created us in his image. Goes on to say this. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and what? Govern it. Reign over it. God delegated sovereign control over this earth to us. Now, that might tweak with our little vision of God's sovereignty. We might have been taught or we might assume that God is sovereign. Therefore, he's the mover of everything that happens here on the earth. But he's not. At the very beginning, he says, this world that I created good is now ruled over people made in my image who could choose good or evil. They're going to make this world something great or they're going to make this world something terrible. But it's theirs. It's theirs. I fancy myself a moderate to poor chess player. So here's the chessboard, and there are chess pieces, right? And um, for those of us who played chess, there are billions of options here. Every chess game has billions of different options. And the way God created the cosmos is he created the cosmos as free. In other words, the chessboard is free. And he created the players as free agents. God in his sovereignty delegated his sovereignty to a free board played by free players. We are free the board is free. Now, what I want you to imagine is this board, this chess board is over all the earth and there are 7 billion players. There are 7 billion of us each making our moves every single day. Every choice we make, everything we do, we're making moves. 7 billion of us are playing on this global chess board and everything we do has implications on other people's lives. The chess board, the world is free. And by the way, just a little sidebar, quantum physics makes it really clear the cosmos is a free agent. The cosmos itself is a free agent. I won't get into that. It's pretty fun stuff. And then we are free agents, made in God's image. We can do whatever we want to do. And sometimes we move for good, and sometimes we move for evil. Sometimes our moves create an environment of prosperity and fortune. Sometimes our moves create an environment of suffering. This world's a free cosmos, and we are 7 billion free agents playing. And so in this whole world, there are things that happen for the good and things that happen for the bad, oftentimes without explanation. And so here we have the, the book of Job. He loses his uh, farm through the overt evil actions of others. These raiders come, they steal his animals and slaughter his farmhands, and so he loses everything. Then a natural uh, disaster sweeps through another farm, and this fire uh, uh, kills the animals and the farmhands. That's a natural disaster. Then another natural disaster, the, the winds, a hurricane, takes out his, his kids, all of his kids. And then there's this disease that, that impacts his body and he's covered in boils head to toe and his skin is melting off of his flesh. And, and so it's this combination of bad and evil moves that people have played and the cosmos, the randomness of the cosmos that presses against Job. He loses everything. He's suffering intensely. Job 1.11, reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And so it's as though the heavenly beings, God and, and the Satan and, and others are just looking at the landscape of, of humankind, a, a free cosmos with free humanity and Job is suffering 
And there's this grand question, what is he going to do now? He's a righteous man. And the accuser says he's a righteous man because things are being played in his favor. If he is crushed, will he still be a righteous man? And the heavens wait. And in that suffering, there's a question that goes out. There's several that go out in the book of Job, but one of them is where is God in the suffering? Where is God in the suffering? And that's a question we all have, right? When someone we love is suffering intensely or we're suffering intensely, where is God? We don't feel the presence of God. And that's understandable because we know God is good. So if we're suffering, we don't feel a good presence. But in the book of Job, this is where we get that that sort of faith element that says, even though I'm not feeling the presence of a good God, I know that this suffering isn't caused by him. He's a good God who is right here with me in my suffering. God is here. And, and, and one of the reasons why we really love the, the truth about Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ himself, the fullness of divinity, was a player, a free agent playing in our world. 2,000 years ago, he was born, he was here, and he made his moves. And he impacted the world for good. So we know God is here. We know God is with us. And we know God is good. Even though what's happening in our life isn't good, and even though we don't feel his good presence, we can know He's here. He's with us. And he empathizes toward us. He feels what we feel. His heart breaks when our heart breaks. That's one of the truths about God. He's here in our suffering. Another question emerges. Why doesn't he stop suffering? That's a fair question, right? Why doesn't a good God just step into this whole game and stop suffering? When he sees suffering happen, why doesn't he just reach in and stop it? Here's why. God doesn't stop our suffering because he is a parent by nature. God is a parent by nature. What did Jesus say over and over again about God? That God is our heavenly what? Father. God's a heavenly father. God's nature is that of a parent. That's why he creates. That's why he created us in his image. He created us very much like him. That's what parents do, right? My four kids have the DNA of of mom and dad. And so we create people who are like us. God created us very much like him. God is a parent by nature. Now, you could say a parent has, I suppose, the right or the power to protect their children, outright protect their children. We have the right or the power to do that. Let me give you a ridiculous example. Uh, When my daughter, uh, my, my oldest, was first born, I had the power to protect her from physical harm, totally. I had the power to protect her from any risk of physical harm. What I would have done, as soon as she was born, I would have put her in a small padded box. No furniture, nothing to get hurt. You're just going in a small padded box, and I'm going to put the lid on that so you won't get hurt. I'll send you some little you know, soft food and water to keep you alive, but I don't want you to suffer, so I'm going to put you in a small padded box. You will not get physically harmed. I had the power to do that. Might have gotten arrested, but I had the power to do that. I also had the power to totally protect my daughter emotionally. We get emotionally hurt when we get emotionally attached, and then that attachment has some problems. So the way to protect my daughter from emotional harm is to make sure she doesn't love anyone, right? And so I could have put her in that box and made sure she didn't have any friends, make sure she doesn't know mom and dad because we might hurt her. So we're going to put her in a padded box, no friends, nothing to get physically harmed, nothing to get emotionally harmed. You see where I'm going? As a parent, 
If I chose to ensure my daughter did not suffer by exercising an iron grip sovereignty over every detail of her life, I would be, in fact, inflicting the greatest imaginable suffering upon her. God is a father. He's a loving father. And there's a risk to being a parent. There's a risk to being a parent. When we have kids, very much like us, have our DNA, we send them into this world. We send them into this world. And in this world, they may suffer. They may suffer in ways that make no sense, that seem random. Connecting the dots isn't possible. They might go into the world and prosper for a season. They might go into the world and suffer for a season. We don't know. But if our kids suffer, does that mean we're evil? What's the answer? If our kids suffers, does that mean we're evil? No. We just did what parents do. We give birth to children that are very much like us, and we send them into the world. Because the adventure of living in this world is a wonderful adventure. Sometimes there's good things that happen. Sometimes there's bad things that happen. But it's a wonderful adventure, all of it sort of held together by the love of a parent to a child. But there's an inherent risk. On October 1st, 2017, we got a call very, very early in the morning from our, our daughter, our oldest daughter. And when you get a call in the middle of the night from your kids, it's not good. We've had that call twice. Neither of them were good. She gave us a call and she was hysterical. Her voice was shaking and she was panicking. And she said, we're being shot at and we're running for our lives. She was in the middle of the Route 91 uh, shooting, the largest mass shooting in US history. And she was in the middle of it. And she saw people around her shot. And she and her fiance are, are, are running, trying to find shelter and they're hearing the machine gun fire in the background. And we're on the phone with her. This is incredible suffering. Unfortunately, she wasn't injured. Dozens and dozens were killed and hundreds were injured. So it could have been far worse. But here's my daughter suffering the trauma of being in the middle of the worst mass shooting in American history. Did we cause that as parents? Did we cause it? What's the answer? No, we just released her to the free world with free players. Did we allow it to happen? You can make an argument that if we kept her in a padded cardboard box, she wouldn't have experienced that. So I suppose if you want to get ridiculous about it, you can say we allowed it. But we just simply gave birth to a child that was made in our image and released her into the world. We didn't cause it. We didn't allow it. It's just what comes along with the territory. That's what God does with us. And sometimes there's prosperity and sometimes there's suffering. But where were we during that call? Where were we during that call? We were right there with her. She was a five-hour drive away, but we were right there with her. God is right there with us in our suffering, right there with us. This is the complexity of this whole world, a free cosmos with free people, free to cause good, free to cause suffering. A free cosmos that sometimes there is, you know, sunshine and light, and sometimes there's a torrential downpour that destroys. And in it all, there is very little rhyme and very little reason. It just happens. Job 1.8, and the Lord asked the Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. 
Whether things are going well for Job or bad for Job, God's love and care is always with him. Always with him. And God's love and care is always with us. So just know that God's sovereignty is at an arm's length, and that should help us process suffering in a way that can kind of allow us to be healthy and, and really sober-minded when we're suffering or we're trying to help somebody else in their suffering. Second thing that comes out of Job is this. Cliché answers in the face of suffering are just harmful ignorance. When somebody is suffering, don't just give cliched platitudes. I'll give you a couple of examples. If you're walking with somebody who's suffering, don't tell them, oh, well, that means something good will come out of it. Don't say that. I know we're trying to help. Well-meaning people are trying to help by saying, hey, this will all make sense someday. I'm telling you, it probably won't. That's not the way this works. It's not the way a free cosmos works. It's not the way free people work. It doesn't make sense. Now, it could happen that something good comes out of it, but that's not the point. And I'm telling you, listen, if you walk alongside somebody who's lost a child and you say, oh, something good will come out of it, you are harming them like you wouldn't even believe. Oh, this good thing was worth the price of my child? Don't do the cliches. The cliches that were being poured out upon Job from his, quote, friends, <laughs> that were pretty terrible friends, to be honest with you, they were trying to connect the dots. They were trying to say, okay, Job, you're suffering, and, and because God is just, you must suffer for a reason. You must have done something terrible, terribly wrong. So Elphaz says this in Job 4.7. He says, who that was innocent ever perished? In other words, Job, you're perishing. You must be guilty as sin. You must have done something bad. And Job's saying, listen, I don't think I have. But this guy's sort of like the, the modern-day uh, Calvinist who says, you know what? We're all evil, so every suffering that we endure, we deserve. It's kind of the modern Calvinists. They, they tend to be a little, anyway, I won't. <laughs> ah, some of my best friends are Calvinists. But they believe in God's like iron-fisted sovereignty. He causes all this evil. And, and, and because we're all sinners, right? That's the tag. We're all sinners. We deserve it. Oh, that's just a terrible view of God. I do not think it's scriptural. It's such a terrible view of suffering that we suffer so we deserve it. And listen, that's human nature to think if we suffer, we deserve it. Now listen, if you do something dumb and you're paying the consequences of doing something dumb, yeah, you deserve it, <laughs> All right? You just did something dumb and now you're paying the price for that. But God is not the giant sort of, you know, cosmic chess player who makes sure that every single thing is fair and just. That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. God does not punish us by ruining our lives. But I'm telling you, I walk alongside people who suffer and they think, what did I do wrong? Most people think that. If I only prayed enough, if I was only a better person, if I didn't do that thing 23 years ago, right? People think bad things happen because they did something wrong. Every single one of Job's friends said that to him. You must have done something wrong. Uh, Zophar piles on and says, if only he would tell you the secrets of wisdom for true wisdom is not a simple matter. Listen, God is doubtlessly punishing you far less than you deserve. Nice guy, right? Not only did you do something terrible to deserve this, but you're probably going to have worse things happen to you because you're a terribly evil person. Because in our cliched mind, something goes wrong because we deserve it. Then Elihu says, he repays people according to their deeds. He treats people as they deserve. This is human wisdom. It's religious cliche. 
You know, sort of like God makes karma work out, that every good thing results in good things happening. Every evil thing results in evil things happening. Listen, karma is a joke. Karma is a lie. It is not the way the cosmos works. There are plenty of evil people who have very good things happen to them, right? And there are plenty of good people that have incredibly terrible things happen to them. Karma does not work. It's not meant to work. We have a free cosmos with free people. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes we have good fortune and are healthy and prosperous, and sometimes terrible things happen, and we suffer incredibly. God's sovereignty is at an arm's length, so he's not the cause and doesn't, you know, quote, allow, but he is here when we're prosperous, and he is here when we're suffering. But then he wants us to understand that in the suffering, you can endure. In the suffering, you can make it. In the suffering, you can grow in ways that perhaps you have never grown before. It doesn't make the suffering even Stephen in the end, but through the suffering, you can become a better person. In the suffering, you can become more empathetic. In the suffering, you can sort of feel what other people are feeling, and then you can live your life the way Jesus did to better the lives of people around you. And this is why we absolutely love focusing on Jesus, because he himself was a free player in this free cosmos, and everything he did was for the good. Everything he did was for the good. He didn't cause any suffering, but he bettered the lives of everybody around him. So as we live our own lives, we can look at the example of Jesus who lived in this world 2,000 years ago, and every move he made was a move of love. Every move he made was a move of mercy. Every move he made was a move of justice, and he radically changed the whole landscape of the world. And we get to live our lives the way Jesus lived his life, even when we suffer, because Jesus himself suffered. Jesus himself lived his life so well that every move he made was for the benefit of another person, which means he was selfless every step of the way, even to the point of giving his life he was arrested because he did so much good for so many. And that sort of threatened the religious power brokers and the political power brokers. They wanted him done. He was becoming so popular because he loved people so completely. They wanted to do away with him. So they arrested him and tortured him and murdered him on a cross. Jesus lived his life so selflessly that he himself suffered. Worse than any of us will suffer. He suffered. He laid down his life for us. We follow him. We can live our lives in the same way. We can live our lives that selflessly, that lovingly. Whether our lives are full of good fortune or our lives are full of suffering, we can still live for the benefit of others just like Jesus. So we're going to close in communion. And on the buckets on your table, there are communion cups, all safe and nicely packaged. If you're at home, you can get some bread and some juice or wine, and you can share communion with your own family as well. But we're going to close out our time remembering the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And so if you open the very top of your container, there will be a, a little piece of bread. This bread represents the broken body of Jesus. When he was in the upper room with his disciples right before his crucifixion, he says, my body will be broken. I will be crushed. 
I will lay down my life as the greatest expression of love. Jesus says, I will love you till the very end. I will not stop advocating for mercy, advocating for justice, and I will not stop loving until they take away my last breath on a cross. My body will be broken for you. So take this bread and eat it in remembrance of Jesus. And then take the cup. This juice is a reminder of the love of Christ. It's a reminder of the blood of Christ poured out for us. Jesus loved us till the very end. He loved us to the very end, to the point of shedding his own blood, to the point of him laying down his life to show mercy, to show justice, to show love for all of us. So when we take this cup, take this cup, not only in remembrance of the love of Jesus poured out for us, but let it be a reminder that we too can live our lives selflessly and sacrificially for the benefit of others to alleviate the suffering of those around us. Take this and drink this in remembrance of Jesus. And then finally, my favorite verse in Job. You ready? And just sit with this. The very last verse of Job, Job 42, 17. Job died. An old man who had lived a long, full life. Did you get that? Job died, an old man who had lived a long, full life. You know what Job's life was full of? Job's life was full of family and friends and business and some wealth and some prosperity. That's what Job's life was full of. Then Job's life was full of intense suffering, losing every one of his children losing his business, losing his health. The only people in his life, his wife, lovely wife, saying, curse God and die. And his four friends who did nothing but accuse him of being an incredible sinner. Job's life was full of suffering. Every one of our lives is full of some good things and full of some terrible things. That's just the way it is. That's a good, full life. So take every blessing, take every fortune and enjoy it. Take every bit of suffering that comes in your life or the life of those around you and courageously endure it. Courageously endure it. You may suffer, you may cry, you may cry out to God, you may curse God. He can take it. But get through Because God is with you and God loves you and God is doing something in your life through the good times and through the bad times. And all the while, live your life to alleviate the suffering of those around you. That will be a good, long, full life. Let's pray. Our God and Father, this book is a doozy. This is a book that has confounded the entire world for thousands of years. How do we wrestle through the reality that there is suffering, that there are good people who suffer intensely and that you're a good God somehow in that mix? Where are you in the suffering? Why don't you stop the suffering? How can a good God allow it? And yet we see such deep, profound, meaningful principles 
that are not easy with everything tied up in a nice bow, but they're very helpful. That you are a good God, that you're a sovereign God, but your sovereignty was delegated to us. And we are free people in a free cosmos, and sometimes we wreck this place. And sometimes there is great suffering that cannot be easily figured out. But God, in all of it, you are here and you love and you give grace and you give forgiveness and you don't give us what we deserve. You give us grace. You give us forgiveness through Jesus Christ. You look at us as perfect daughters and perfect sons, even though we know we are not. You give us grace upon grace and you will give us the courage to get through the suffering of life. And you will give us the strength to live like Jesus more and more to live, to alleviate the suffering of others. God, may we live our lives in a way that truly reflects the light and the love of Jesus who gave himself for us. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen.